You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Remain standing for a word of prayer before you open up the word of God together this morning. Father, we thank you for being not just God, not just God up in the sky, but God, our God, close to us and intimate with us. Father, so many things to thank you for this Thanksgiving. Thank you for the very breath in our lungs. Thank you for uh, the, the, the reality of the word of God, which speaks to us so loud and clear. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who abides in us and lives within us, giving us your life. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who truly forgives and gives life to all who come calling upon his name. Thank you for our church family, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity in a free country to sing and to express our our praise and our gratitude to you for who you are. God, this morning as we give thanks to you, I pray that part of the way we give thanks this morning is to be listeners of the word, to have our ears and our eyes and our hearts open, God, to what you want to teach us and show us and how you want to move within us today. God, we truly do thank you for everything. May now this next 45 minutes be an exercise of gratitude as we turn our eyes to the heavens and say, God, here we are. Come near, Lord. Speak in a way that we can hear and understand and be changed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to go ahead and grab a seat this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, glad you're here this morning just to get close to the Lord and study the Word of God. Mark chapter 3 is where we are. If you don't have a, a Bible, stick your hand up. We'd love to uh, give you a copy of God's Word to follow along, and uh, if you don't have a copy at home, please, happy Thanksgiving. Take it home with you. It's our Thanksgiving gift to you. Uh, but some Thanksgivings in our church, we take time off and just do a Thanksgiving sermon. Sometimes we just keep on going uh, through our sermon series. This, uh, this Thanksgiving, we're going to keep on going through a sermon series in, chapter, in Mark, uh, studying uh, Jesus, and the character of Jesus, the person of Jesus, wanting to know nothing more than Jesus Christ. And so Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, let me read them for you as you uh, hopefully give you a few seconds to get Let me read them, and we're just going to dive right in today, so filled with truth that we need to know and hear uh, this morning. If you're here today, this is God's word for you. This is what God wants you to know today from his mind, from his heart. And so let me read for you Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 1. A man with a withered hand. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Trick question. They were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Yes, this is Jesus. Grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So Jesus heals the guy and they're like, let's kill him. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, get this, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Verse 13, and he went up to the mountainside and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed 12. Here they are, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James and the James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. This is family, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. 
It's an interesting text, isn't it, today? We've really been trying to like get past all the myth and all the things we add to Jesus. Just get to the real Jesus. We just want to see Jesus for who he really is. And let me tell you this, the real Jesus, everywhere he went, he brought controversy. This is called a conflict narrative because where Jesus went, there was controversy. It's like people were forced face to face to either accept him or deny him to either love him or reject him. As so we understand Jesus, we understand I come to understand in a lot of ways, he's revolutionary, he's radical, uh, he's also this, he's controversial, and he's polarizing. In other words, when you meet Jesus, you have two options. You're either drawn to him and love him, or you absolutely reject him and, hard to say that word, isn't it? Hate him. He's just polarizing. There's polarizing people we know in our world today, isn't there? I can think of some, some names that start with T. You could probably think of some too. In America, they have Trump. Pretty polarizing fellow. In Canada, we have Trudeau. Equally, you guys all snicker. Equally polarizing. What about this guy? Tebow. Think about it. People that love them or hate them, their personalities, what they stand for, what they believe in, what they don't believe in sometimes, but you either love them or hate them. Jesus is the exact same. With his, his claims, his outrageous claims, he claimed to be the son of God who came to forgive sin. People are like, yes, yes, I want to embrace you. like, no, get away from me. I don't want that. Think of Jesus' life. The miracles he performed and the casting out of, of demons. And, and some people are like, oh, man, that's clear sign that Jesus is who he says. Others are like, oh, I don't know, something wonky's going on. Let me get away from this guy. It's a little bit too much for me, the way he lived his life. Thinking about this, I learned this a little bit last week, the way he, he turned the religious people upside down, the religious systems upside down. Remember, he came, to not, he came to fulfill the law, and in that he brought a whole new way of relating to God and his superior wisdom and authority, and he ate with sinners and tax collectors. The religious like, we don't do that. That's, Jesus is like, oh yeah, we do this. And he turned everything they knew upside down, and people seemed to either love him or they hated him. Interesting, because when Jesus confronts us, the reality of who he really is, it's the very same. We, we can't just go on as normal. We can't just half agree with Jesus and half not. We can't just think he's a pretty cool guy, but have other things to do. We either come, we come face to face with a decision. Every time we see the real Jesus face to face decision time, will I embrace him or will I inject, reject him? Will I be for him or will I be against him? This text points out for us Three different responses uh, to Jesus Christ. And it's important you stop and take note, even in your own heart this morning, where are you with Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Are you with him or are you against him? It's important because it says in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground with Jesus Christ. It's an important Thanksgiving sermon today. Might not be the warm gushies that you're expecting in the remembrance of all the things Christ has done for us, but it's a a great Thanksgiving sermon because it brings us face to face with will I be all in for Jesus or not? The greatest Thanksgiving you can give Jesus is to be all in for him. Let's study the text now, starting at verse one. You can write this down in your notes if you're taking notes today. Uh, Jesus' rebel ways caused many to despise him. Jesus' rebel ways when it comes to religion caused many to despise him. Interesting, again, we see him in chapter three, verse one. Again, he entered, what did he enter right here? What did he enter? The synagogue. Where did Jesus spend most of his time? He spent it in church trying to convert the religious to himself. So here he is in church, he's preaching, he's teaching and and probably mesmerizing the crowd with his his awesome wisdom as we've learned already and and the heart penetrating sermons and as he's preaching or teaching, guess what? This man with a withered hand comes in. This, This man that was crippled, you think, well that's not a big deal. There's people with disabilities all the time that come into church. Back in Jesus' day, this was like a this was like to be disabled or crippled meant meant to you were kind of less than you were lower than, you probably took the back seat in the church and definitely not the front seat. 
And so this guy comes in, his right hand, Luke tells us. Uh, Mark just says hand. Luke says right hand. His right hand is all withered and crippled, probably uh, something like that. And so it would be a, uh, an embarrassment to him. He'd be ashamed of it. He'd kind of be hiding that thing under his coat and hoping no one would see it. In fact, back in Jesus' day, even the, the priests were not allowed to be maimed or have any disabilities. It said that in Leviticus chapter 21. And so this guy's kind of coming into church and the Pharisees are all sitting there going like, oh, here he is, here he is. Let's see what Jesus does with this guy. This is our chance to really get him now. Remember last week, they tried to get him with all the grain stuff and, and maybe it's even a setup. We don't know. Now we're going to get him in church breaking the Sabbath. They're all like, woohoo! Just like today, some people just want to do anything they can to disprove Jesus, right? And find loopholes and prove that he's not true and he's not real. That was the Pharisees. And so they had built themselves, remember they built themselves all these, uh, all these rules around the Sabbath, around work. We learned last week, well, they built all these rules around even healing on the Sabbath. When Jesus said don't, when God said don't work, they're like, okay, well, that means you probably, you probably can't help somebody get better on the Sabbath because that would be work. So you could help them stay the same, stabilize them. You can help them not die, but you can't help them get better. That's just ludicrous, isn't it? And so that was their way of thinking, building all these laws around. And so this guy walks up and Jesus looks at him, and look what his two words are. I love these words right here in verse three. What does he say? Come here. He's not shunning the crippled man. He's saying, come here. This guy's probably a stonemason or something and worked his whole life, and now he's completely useless, and Jesus loves those who are less than. He says, come here. And then he looks at the audience, the Pharisees, and he gives this uh, trick question. He knows their hearts, right? Jesus knows everything. He knows what they're thinking. He knows, like, aha, we got you. And so he really turns the tables, and he has them. It's, he says this, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm? This isn't Jesus' sermon. This would be an awkward one, hey? To save a life or to kill it, or to kill. It's like one of those moments, you know, when you come in late from when you're a teenager, you come in late and you're supposed to be home by 11 and it's 12 o'clock and you come in the door tiptoe and your dad's standing right there. He's like, where have you been? <laughs> it's really, there's just nothing to say at that point, right? You just hang your head and keep walking. That's where he has the Pharisees and he's like, so is it good to do good on the Sabbath? He told them in Matthew chapter 12 it was. It's good to do good on the Sabbath. He actually knew in Matthew 12, it tells us he knew that they would rescue their sheep and their oxen on the Sabbath. So he's really bringing the reality of their heart forward. So like, you're worried about all your rules and regulations. What about helping somebody on the Sabbath? So if they said it's good, then they're like, oh, we let him off the hook. They can't say that. If they say it's okay to, to do evil and kill, well, that's just wrong, clearly. So they shut up. Pharisees finally got something right. They just kept quiet. Jesus, look what he does next. He reaches out. And he heals them. First of all, verse five, he looks around them with anger. Yeah, Jesus gets angry. He was ticked. He's like, how can, how can you not see that I, I came to save you? I came to help you. He's grieved at the hardness of their heart. He's, he's saddened by the, the, their hearts are so hard they can't even see the Messiah standing right before them. And he says this to the man. Notice he didn't say anything to the Pharisees. He just said this to the man, stretch out your hand. He gives them the show and tell lesson they need to get to their full reality of what the law was meant to do, which was to help people and not hurt people. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now, if this happened in our church, this would be like, woohoo, right? Like, imagine this happened in our church. We'd all be out there praising the Lord, wouldn't we? We'd have a big worship service. We'd be praising the Lord. We're like, I've never seen that. God is so good. Look what the Pharisees do. It's kind of the opposite of that, what you'd expect. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Who were the Herodians? They were another political party that, that loved Herod and elevated Herod, and they were worldly, they were unspiritual, but they had something in common with the Pharisees, the religious people. What was that? They hated Jesus. And they took counsel with them on how to destroy him. I just find this so interesting. Isn't the scriptures interesting? It just fake, brings us face to face with like the reality of the human heart. What did Jesus do to constitute someone trying to kill him? He healed somebody. It's a good thing, and yet the hardness of heart, this, this rebellious attitude, this, this, this I don't want anyone telling me what to do, including the Son of God, is really what grabbed the hold of the Pharisees and, and really turned them not to love God, but to hate God. It's interesting to look at this text because I think 
has a lot in common with those in our day and age who seem to reject God. You know, it's never been a, 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 an issue whether Jesus lived or not. It's never been a debate whether he actually lived and did miracles. The debate comes, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? And we see in our culture so many, so many turn to accept Jesus, but even more turn to reject Jesus. We ask ourselves, why? Why is there so much rejection of Jesus Christ? Why can't people just see Jesus and understand him and embrace him? Do you ever wonder that? Well, here's the ultimate point. It comes down to the hardness of, this, of the human heart. It's the hardness of the human heart. And here's what Jesus did when he came. He messed with the full reality of human existence. Here's why the... Here's why the Pharisees rejected him so quickly and, and dismissed him so clearly. Here's why it happens in our culture where people so quickly dismiss and reject Jesus Christ. One, because he, with him he brings his authority that rules. And, and the Pharisees, like people in our day, they didn't want anyone ruling over them. I don't want anyone ruling over me, including the Lord. I don't want anyone lording over me, including the Lord. Isn't that the truth? You can talk people into all the intellectual reasons of why we could believe Jesus and they might nod in their agreement but in their heart they're like, no way. Why is it? Because ultimately people reject Jesus. You know why? Because we don't want a Lord over our lives. Jesus, when he came, you have a choice to make. You're gonna bow to his authority or not. You know what else Jesus did when he came? He dismantled neat and tidy religious systems. He turned the religious upside down and customs and traditions and, and all the things that people held closely to. And well, this makes me feel insignificant. And this is what is meaningful to me. He's like, well, that doesn't matter anymore. And people couldn't handle it. So instead of accepting Jesus, they rejected Jesus. Much like today, it's so easy, isn't it, to hold on to our exterior religi religiosity instead of really grapple with the inner reality of what Jesus came to do and to be. Because ultimately, here's what Jesus did in this text and what he does in our hearts. He comes and he exposes the very essence of our souls. Notice this. This is, this is I think, what caused the Pharisees more grief than anything is Jesus just exposes their heart. They were so consumed with all their rules and all their regulations, they cared nothing about people. They had no compassion for people. They didn't care about people. They just wanted to do all the right things and look good on the outside. And Jesus came and was like, really? Look, here's a guy who needs help and you don't even want to help him? That's an indictment upon the human heart. Ultimately, I think that's the real reason why people in our day and age reject Jesus as well. It's so easy to hold on to all our religion do all the right things, but then we have to grapple with the full reality of our human heart. And quite honestly, just, just like a, a mirror is to our face, they hold up the word of God and you see Jesus and the word of God is a mirror to our souls. And quite honestly, a lot of times, even I will still look at him like, ah, oh, that doesn't make me look good at all. You with me? Just like our physical mirror, some mornings I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my goodness, like get that mirror out of here. Like I am one ugly sucker. I don't want to look in the mirror today. It's too painful. And I go out to my bathroom, I'm like, Zach, am I this ugly? He's like, yeah, you are, Dad. Like, you've been ugly that one. You know? It's hard to come face to face with the realities, right? And other times you look at the mirror, you're like, I don't look too bad. Some of you guys are better looking than I am. So you're like, I look good. I, don't, I haven't had that in a little while. But that's what the word of God, that's what Jesus does when he confronts us. Here's what happens. He, he, he causes us to see the full reality of a perfect heart, his, compared to an imperfect heart, ours. And sometimes it just isn't pretty. And so rather than trying to grapple with the heart, we run the other way. So the Pharisees are doing uh, right here. It's easier to sit on their little pedestals and fire arrows at others who aren't doing the right things and thinking the right way. And it is so difficult sometimes just to allow Jesus to come in and show us our heart condition and our motives and our actions. And so instead of humbling ourselves under Jesus, repenting of our sin and asking him for strength to do it God's way, what we do is we, we find the, more e the easier way, the more convenient way. We stand up to him. We harden our hearts. We want to do it my way. See, when Jesus came, it wasn't all smiles and giggles. He came to put us in our place. And even as believers for a little while, that, that's sometimes hard to take, isn't it? And rather than confront the real Jesus, we allow our tendencies of our heart to get a little bit bitter towards him. We get our, 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 our dukes up a little bit with Jesus, and we're like, well, I don't want to be in my place. I want to be in your place. Ever felt that before? 
Yeah, me too. That's really where, that's really where our hardness of heart, where our hatred for Jesus comes from, where our rebellion against Jesus comes from. It comes from the, the reality that I don't want to be in my place. I want to be in his place. Even today, some of you are struggling with the hardness of heart towards Jesus. That, that might be where it stems from. Uh, here's what else Jesus came to. He came to expose our religious practices, all the things we hide behind to make ourselves feel good and others look at us with, with adoration. Uh, he, he rips them all away. And we're almost left naked. And he comes, he comes to call out our hearts that we might, not that we might be hammered, we might live in, in grief, that we might live in, in, in guilt and shame, but he comes to do this. Why? Because he loves us. Deeply loves us. And he wants us to see how sinful our condition is because we're just like the Pharisees at heart, all of us. Little Pharisee in me, little Pharisee in you. And he wants us to see the wickedness of our hearts. Why? So that we could turn to him and say, God, my heart is so broken. It's so sinful. I need Jesus Christ more than anything else. I want to come to you. I want you to come, Lord. I want you to take my heart of stone, my hard-hearted heart. I want you to take it out and give me a heart of flesh. Look at Jesus' invitation to the man in this first text. He's, what does he say? Just, just come here. Come to me. We're confronted with Jesus. He wants us to come to him and, and he wants us to not hide all of the, all of the uh, broken places of our lives, which we all have many of them. He doesn't want us to hide them. He doesn't want us to be ashamed. He wants us to, to bring them to him that he might reach out and touch us and heal us, heal us. That's why he exposes these different things. He wants to heal us and he wants to rip down all our religious walls that we can truly see face to face the living God, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory. The religiosity that we fight with keeps us from seeing Jesus clearly and he wants to rip that down. It's all because he loves us. He doesn't want us to run from him. He wants us to run to him. He doesn't want us to reject him. He wants us to embrace him. Let me ask you this morning very clearly and pointedly, and I know there's people here from different places, different backgrounds, different walks of life. Where are you truly at with Jesus? Are you a lot like the Pharisees today? Want all the perks of Jesus, but inwardly we're repulsed and repelled because of all the things I just mentioned? That's you today. You know what Jesus wants to do? He wants you to like, he wants to rip down all those walls. He wants you to see Jesus plainly. He wants to invite you to himself that he might make you a brand new person and give you a brand new life. Some people just plain hated Jesus. Remember, with Jesus, you either love him or you hate him. But in the middle text here, we see even a third category that looks at first like it's promising, but actually it's not a positive thing at all. It's those who are intrigued by Jesus because of his many miracles, but they really don't accept Jesus. Jesus' miracles cause many to be intrigued by him, which is completely different than fully loving him and being invested in him. So we see the Pharisees. That's their reaction. Let's, let's learn from them and, and humble ourselves and not be like Pharisees. But here's the other group, another group of people before we get to the apostles. Here it is, verse 7. A great crowd follows Jesus. So right after Jesus had this experience in the synagogue, he went out in the, with his disciples and a great crowd followed from all over the place and they're uh, now become the hype, right? Jesus become the hype. He's doing some pretty cool things. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. Word spread. He's like a modern day rock star and so he's getting to a place where they're like, they're hemming in and like there's, there's too many people and he's afraid he's gonna get trampled. They're just trying to touch him to heal him and they're, all this hype and so Jesus, what he does, it's a good thing he calls them fishermen, isn't it? Hey, grabs a fisherman, get in your boat. They go out to sea a little bit. That way he can get away from the crowds, but not to be away from them. But then he could actually preach to a bigger crowd and the, let the, the, the ocean, the water, let his voice carry over the multitudes. So there he is, and all these people are clamoring. Because why? Because they're just like us. They're needy. They have emotional needs. They have spiritual needs. They have relational needs, they have physical needs, and they just want to be healed. Some of them just want the freedom. They just long for Jesus. I just want to be free from, my, from this demon possession and this, this oppression on my soul. I just want to be free. And so it seems like it's really good motives, and most of the time it probably was, but here's the reality. People are being drawn to Jesus a lot of times in the New Testament, not for who he really is or what he really came to do, but for what he could do for them. People only saw Jesus as a miracle worker to solve their felt needs and 
They didn't really want Jesus for Jesus. Just that Jesus is my little cosmic butler that'll do whatever I want him to do, that'll meet all my needs and serve me very well. And, and yet we see here that the demons understood who he was. The unclean spirits, that's demons. That they saw him and they fell down before him and they cried this. Notice this, the crowds didn't get this. They saw Jesus as a miracle worker. The demons got this. They said this, you are the son of God. You are truly the son of God. And because of all of the realities surrounding all the things that they wanted Jesus to be and do and all the implications of if everyone followed him, he wouldn't be able to actually teach the message he wanted to teach. And so he said this at the end. He said this. He strictly ordered them not to make himself known. You're like, that's an odd statement because didn't Jesus come to be known by everybody? Isn't that what he came for? Absolutely. But he came to be known, but not just for being a miracle worker, not just for being somebody who's going to meet all of our needs. He came to be known as the true God, the Lord, the Son of the living God, the Lord of our lives. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in superficial followers. He wasn't interested in like a ton of Twitter, Twitter followers and Facebook likes and, and get out of jail free calls, you know, the kind that people, when they're in trouble, he, wasn't, he didn't come for that stuff. He came to actually be Lord and God of our lives. So we see really a, crowd of, a great crowd follows Jesus. You can almost put quotations around the word follows Jesus because these guys were the fence sitters. These guys were the, yeah, Jesus! Until something went wrong. Yeah, Jesus! Until he didn't do exactly what they thought he should do. Isn't this true of a lot of people in our culture today? We love Jesus because we think he's gonna find us that spouse or save our marriage or get us that job, that job advancement or um, build our bank portfolios, be our personal doctor that will give us instant remedy to all our ailments and give me the perfect counsel to lift me when I'm down and just make my life better, more comfortable here on earth. And, and yet that's not the real Jesus at all. And Jesus isn't interested in that type of follower. He's not interested in fence sitters. I find it interesting, even in our church today, we find so many people that are convinced they're following Jesus, but it's only a superficial following. You talk to them more than 15 minutes and you realize it's only a superficial following. It's a prosperity gospel, all the things that, that God's gonna give me and do for me, and, and, and it seems that my faith revolves around not the Savior, but the self. You've met them, those people. Maybe you are those people and you're, you, you want one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus category and, and somehow you think that's going to be satisfying, fulfilling life. You ever tried sitting on a fence? If you haven't, I wouldn't advise it. It's not comfortable. It hurts. You ever tried sitting on a fence? Think picket fence. Like how long would you sit there? Probably 0 0.05 seconds. And you're given a choice, one side or the other. To sit on the fence is actually choosing the other side. And it's not Jesus' side, it's a self-serving self faith. It's a, it's a pursuit Jesus for all the, the superficial realities of what you think he's gonna bring you. Think of this, think of this, the difference between intrigued people like the great crowd and the truly invested followers of Jesus Christ. Some hated him. Some were simply intrigued by him, but not invested in him. Here's how you know whether you're just an intrigued person or an invested person in Jesus Christ. Here's three kind of little tests you can do in your own heart this morning. Number one is this. Are you self-centered or Jesus-saturated? Are all your prayers about yourself, all your dialogue with Jesus, all about you and me and me and me? Or are you Jesus-saturated? Do you love Jesus? Do you long for Jesus? Do you just want to be with Jesus and have his glory? Are you in it for love of self or are you in it for love of a savior? Here's another way, consumeristic versus sacrificial. Lots of consumers these days, especially in church, man. I'm just amazed by it. We're not praying about where God's leading us. We're just consuming, we're consuming, we're consuming. And, and, and are, we, are, we truly, um, are we truly in it for sacrificial reasons? Or are we just doing it for what Jesus can do for me and how, how the church can serve me? Or am I doing this because of what I can do for Jesus and, and what I can do for his kingdom? Is serving just a convenient thing or is it a sacrificial thing for you? Is it a lifestyle of, of we just love Jesus? Here's another one, non-committal versus fully engaged. And Again, I've seen this over and over and I'm preaching to my own heart this morning because 
my own worldly heart, let's be honest, it gravitates towards the left side, not the right side. Non-committal, are you here, there, and everywhere in regards to Jesus? Or are you all in for Jesus no matter what the circumstance is, when things are good, when things are bad? I'm just going to be all in for Jesus no matter what. The intrigued or the invested? Let me just tell you this. If you take stock of your own heart right now and you're more on the intrigued side than the invested side, let me tell you this. The intrigued side is not satisfying. It's not fulfilling. You're going to end up being a bitter, old, grumpy man or woman wondering why God is not good to you, where God is. It's because it's self-serving and not Savior-seeking. On the other hand, the fullness of life and the fullness of joy comes in the invested side where you just, you just realize that you're going to give your all for Jesus. No holding back. It doesn't matter what happens or how it happens. Jesus died for you and gave his all for you. You're just going to give your whole life to him. That's where meaning and fulfillment, that's where your salvation becomes alive and the life of Jesus flows through your body, your veins, your soul like never before. Some hated him. Some were on the fence with him. Neither of which is satisfying to Jesus. Others were inspired by the anointed Savior and became fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That would be the apostles in verses 13 to 20. Jesus' anointing inspired fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Again, it's not wrong to take stock of your life. Where are you at this point in the, in the sermon? Where are you at in the point, this point in the text? Are you, are you a hater of Jesus? Are you a, uh, a rejecter of Jesus? Are you sort of like, uh, whatever about Jesus? And some days are, when days are, when days are gray, you're like on your way. When days are sunny, you're right with the sun. If you're on any one of those two categories, this is what Jesus is calling you today, what he's inviting you to today, what he desires of your life today, what he designed you for today, is to be, an, be inspired by his anointing, you be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. And he went up on the mountainside and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So often we can skip these verses, but they also have great impact when Wherever we see a mountain in Scripture, that's a, a pinnacle point in, in history. Jesus did a lot of important things on mountains, the mountaintop experiences for believers. Think of some of the mountaintop experiences in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses going on to uh, Mount Sinai and, and getting the meeting with the glory of God and receiving the Ten Commandments. Mountaintops were a place of revelation and redemption. This is a significant reality. The mountaintop is a significant reality we can't miss. God is doing something unique here. He's doing something special here. Like he did with Moses in Exodus 20 on Mount Sinai. When God gave his covenant with his people Israel. Another mountaintop experience, 1 Kings chapter 10, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember he's having that battle and he's, he's calling down fire. And, and whose who's sacrifice is going to be acceptable? His or the, 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 those given to the foreign gods? And, and really he was calling people's hearts to the true reality of, of turning their hearts to the true God. Old Testament mountaintops are significant. New Testament, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the Beatitudes are delivered in the Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount. It's a significant message for us today. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus took three of his closest buddies, Peter and James and John. He took them up to the mountainside for a little guy's getaway retreat where he was going to put into their lives and show them his glory. And who showed up? Moses and Elijah that transformed Jesus Christ. Moment they'd never forget. Well, this is another moment that the disciples would never forget. It's Jesus taking them on the mountainside to reveal to them not just who he is, but their mission and, and show them the full reality of what their redemption leads to in him. So notice this, who Jesus brought with them. And call to him those whom he desired. Notice Jesus initiated the whole discipleship process. It wasn't like the disciples thought, well, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough. Notice that Jesus didn't add, ask for a resume. He didn't make them take a physical. He didn't make them give you a list of all the reasons why they should or shouldn't be his disciple. He calls people to himself and calls them into discipleship. The same story that each one of us have as followers of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus call us? No idea, but he called us. We know that for sure. Not because we're great, but because he is good. God initiates. God chooses. Our job is just be available. Look at this. And they came to him and said, yes, Jesus, I will come. 
So this is the disciples' confirmation ceremony or the uh, official swearing in of their apostleship. We don't have apostles anymore. Those were those, were those who had been with Jesus, but this is pretty, a pretty big deal in the course of human history. Notice there's 12 of them. It corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew tells us that the 12, the 12 apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. This is like a whole new day coming in. So the disciples are here with Jesus, and they're getting uh, really like, you know, kind of like when you get an uh, honorary doctor conferred upon you, you get on your knees, they, they hood you, or you get knighted by the king as a knight. You get on your knees, they take the sword, and they knight you. This is Jesus hooding or knighting the disciples as his. It's a special moment. No deeper honor. It's a lifetime honor or commitment. Jesus, I'm for you. I'm going to be with you. The disciples, I am going to be completely into you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you as you're going to be my rabbi for the rest of my life. I'm going to follow you. There's no turning back. Look at the mark of a disciple. This shows us clearly what a disciple is to Jesus. So often, again, I think it's, we think it's what we do and what we do and all the things that we're supposed to do. You know, as his disciples, look what this, it says here. And so he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, number one. They might be on mission for him, that he might send them out to preach. And they might be his instrument to cast out demons, have authority to cast out demons. Stop and just see the significance of this with me for a moment, because I think we often struggle with discipleship. And we hear in church, saying, we're going to make you disciples of Jesus. We're going to be disciples of Jesus. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What's that? Here's what a disciple of Jesus is. It's right here in the text. This is what Jesus calls us to as, as his people, as his church. He calls us to be with Jesus first and foremost. Notice it's not to do something for Jesus, it's to be with Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be in, in, invited by Jesus, invited by Jesus to, to simply, first and foremost, be with him, to know him, to love him, to rub shoulders with him, to, to become like him. It all comes from being with Jesus. It's an invitation that we really can't ever turn down. Here's the invitation Jesus gives us to be his disciples. Hey, hey, see my, see my hands? See the, see the marks in my hands? That was for you. Because I love you. And you couldn't save yourself, so I did it for you. See my feet? See the piercing in my feet? See that scar that goes so deep? You know why that's there? It's there because I saw your life. I saw how desperate you were for a savior, and I came to fulfill that for you because I love you. See, see, the, see the crown marks on my head when they jam the crown of thorns in? See those marks? It's because I knew you needed someone to truly be king of your life, and you couldn't do it, and no one else could fulfill it, so I came to be your king. And I invite you now simply to come and be with me. So often our Christian faith becomes about all the things that we have to do and have to do and have to do. Jesus' priority for us first of all is just to be with him, to know him and to love him and to see him and to be changed by him. How does that happen every day? Right here it's the word. Right here it's the word. This is your first mark of being a disciple. I'm going to get in God's word. I'm going to read it. Not because it's a history textbook. Not because I want more information. Because I want to see Jesus. I want to commune with him. I want to be with him. I want him to change my life. Remember when you were a kid and your mom says, be careful who you hang out with. Because you're going to become just like them. You're like, she's full of baloney. Then at 44, you're telling your kids, be careful who you hang out with. Because you're just going to be like them. And our kids are saying, you're full of baloney. Jesus wants us to spend time with him and talk to him and know him. As we do, he's going to change us from one degree of glory to another, and he's going to then send us. Uh, you know what our qualification is for being witnesses of Jesus? Being with Jesus. Being with Jesus, qualified as men to bear witness of him and overthrow evil. Look at this. He's going to send them out to preach. Disciples of Jesus are about the mission of Jesus uh, to send them out to preach. I'm so encouraged to tell you all the time that I'm not the only preacher in this church. Guess who is? All of us are. I just happen to be the one up Sunday morning, but Monday to Saturday, we're all preachers. This is what being a disciple is. It doesn't matter who you are or where you go or what you do. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ called to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To lay down your life be an ambassador for Christ, to be his witness, but even more than that, to be his instrument. 
Look at verse 15. This caused a lot of people stress to have authority to cast out demons. Is that what every disciple should be doing is casting out demons? If I'm not casting out demons, I'm not a disciple? Reality is what Jesus is saying in this text is that I'm going to give you the power to do whatever I ask you to do and call you to do. I'm going to give you the power. If it's to cast out a demon, it's to cast out a demon. If it's to share your faith, it's to share your faith. If it's to serve sacrificially, it's to serve sacrificially. But I am asking you, disciples, simply to be my instrument to do with whatever, whatever I see fit. And you'll be able to do in your life whatever I can do if my life is in your life. When I was a kid, we used to all, when it comes to sports equipment, we used to always want the, the Wayne Gretzky hockey stick, the Titan hockey stick. Anyone ever have that Titan hockey stick? It was white with red lettering. And we thought, man, if we just had a Titan hockey stick, then we'd be really good hockey players. It was a Ken Griffey Jr. baseball glove because he was such a good center fielder, right? Ken Griffey Jr. Like, if we just had the Ken Griffey Jr. glove, man, I'd be awesome. The problem was I got the Titan hockey stick and the Ken Griffey Jr. glove I didn't get, but I got another glove that was pretty good. And guess what, though? I'd put my hand in those things and they still couldn't do half of what the other guys could do. It made us feel special, but we couldn't do it. But if Wayne Gretzky were to pick up my hockey stick and play hockey, you'd see that stick do things that I could never do. Ken Griffey Jr. picked up my baseball glove and, and took it out in the field, the center field in Seattle and, and played center field with my baseball glove. That glove would do things that I could never do with it. Here's what Jesus asked his disciples to do, just to be the inch, the tool of which he will then come and his life will inf infuse in our lives and he will then use us to accomplish whatever he desires to accomplish in us and through us. Disciples simply this, fully available to Jesus Christ that his power might be made alive in us. This is what he did with the disciples. 16 to 19 is just listing 12 disciples. It doesn't seem like it's a really encouraging text. It doesn't seem like it's kind of a boring text we skip over, but I want you to notice this about the disciples. They're just regular dudes. They're not special. They're not of the rabbinic line. They're not like the, 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 the guys who are the kingpins in the community. They're not the, the superstars. They're just regular average fishermen and tax collectors and freedom fighters. They're just regular guys. They're like the sandlot. And here we go. Here they are. Men with personality flaws and inconsistencies and irregularities. And here's how Mark describes them. He just lists them by name. He appointed the 12. Here they are. Here's the 12 first apostles. Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. Peter means rock. Not that he was going to be chiseled like Dwayne Johnson. But he'd be rock solid for the kingdom of God. Peter's always first. You know why? Because he wears the C when it comes to the apostles. He's sort of like the captain of Team Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. These are two fishermen whom we learned about a couple weeks ago, and they were own their own fishing company. They're kind of like the, the brawler fishermen, the sons of thunder. They're going to do good damage for the kingdom of God. All their, their rough personalities are going to be changed by Jesus to be preachers of the gospel. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, really not much about these guys in the scripture. You know why? Because they were so ordinary. All of us who think, oh, God can never use me. I'm just, they're so ordinary. Thomas, we know all about him, right? I like Thomas. You like Thomas? Yeah, because we can relate because he was the doubter. I don't know, God, the cynic, yet God chose him. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, which means big-hearted, even like soft, big, big old softies and all kinds of people. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas, the most famous the most famous villain in history who betrayed him. Judas, the dagger man, the modern-day hitman, notices Jesus intentionally added a dissenter to the team. Like, who does that? If I'm picking a team, I'm not picking a dissenter. Who does that? Jesus does because he had a, he had a program that was bigger than his agenda. It was God's agenda, and he's even going to use Judas in that agenda to save our souls. These are the twelve. Being with Jesus, being on mission with Jesus, being his instrument. These are the 12 that so loved Jesus Christ, that were so enamored with Jesus Christ, that guess what? They were even going to give up their whole lives for him. Not just the physical life here in this, on this earth, but they were even going to die for him. That's what it means to truly love Jesus. You truly love Jesus, you're giving your everything for him. Disciple is not this fancy term we use in church. 
Going to be disciples. It means I worship the loudest. It means I have the, the, the most holy sayings. It means I quote the most memory verses. It means that I act the most spiritual. That's not it. It's I love Jesus the most. I'm going to give my whole life to Jesus. Listen to this. The disciples were so convinced of Jesus Christ. They so loved Jesus Christ. They were following him, willing to follow him anywhere in life and anywhere in death. Every one of these guys except for John lost their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Peter, tradition says, was crucified upside down on a cross because he didn't feel being crucified upside right on a cross. It was too much like Jesus. He didn't deserve that, so he was crucified upside down on a cross. James and Paul, it says in tradition, were beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Like, can you imagine that? Thomas, the doubter, got some courage somewhere along the way because he was speared to death. Philip was also stabbed to death. Bartholomew, they say, probably was, was died by a whipping. Simon the Zealot was killed in some unruly fashion, Matthias was stoned and beheaded, and Matthew was killed by sword. This is a mark of a true disciple. I love him. Doesn't matter what he calls me to, I'm going to go with him. This is the one who gave his whole life for me. He gave everything for me on the cross. He, he committed everything for me, not just part of his life. He, he committed it all on the cross. So I'm willing to commit everything back out of love for the one who gave it all for me. I'm going to give my whole life to Jesus. This whole love word that we use, well, I want to love Jesus. Well, this is what loving Jesus really looks like. People either hate him or they're on the fence, which is equivalent to like loving themselves more than Jesus on this side, or they love him. They No turning back. I'm all in. I want to know all of Jesus and all that he has for me in this life. I want to give my everything for him, knowing that that's the best use of my life. That's the most satisfying existence I can live. That's the most meaning I can find. I'm giving everything for Jesus Christ. Where do you sit today? You hate them, you're on the fence, or you love them. There's no wait till I get a better life or wait till I clean up myself. This is the better life, and Christ cleans you up as you live this life and sanctifies you. Will you choose Jesus today? Will you truly love Jesus today? I believe in our culture, we've made Jesus a whole lot of things. We made being a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, so many things. Most of which are not the biblical truth of what it means to love and follow Jesus. And this is why so many people are like, get away, Jesus, it's too hard for me, I want to live my life. Or like, I'm going to have best of both worlds. Jesus is like, that is not it. It's come to Jesus, it's come to me, it's love me, it's follow me, it's see my face and, and feel my embrace and, and, and let me show you, let me live my life in you and show you what it is to truly live for Jesus Christ. And the reality is, none of us will probably be like the 21 Coptic Egyptian Christians, remember them in February 2015 in the orange jumpsuits along some Mediterranean beach? Remember them? On their knees, going to be beheaded? Like, that's probably not going to happen to us in Canada, at least at this point, maybe in a few years, I don't know. But, but yet, that's the attitude Jesus wants us to have with our lives towards him. I will give it all up to gain Christ, to live for Christ, to live his gain, to die as Christ. And it's not bow in fear of death. It's bow in, like, in adoration of my Savior. So I'll get on my knees and say, God, do with my life. Take my life. Let it be fully for you, Jesus. That's what it means to truly love Jesus. Perfectly? Absolutely not. Intentionally? For sure. By God's grace, through the Spirit of the living God helping us, this is what God calls us to today. Do you love him or do you hate him? I think I love him. Do you love him or do you hate him? I thought I loved him. Do you love him or do you hate him? Jesus begs us to come, beckons us to come in love to love him with all that we have in response to how he's loved us, to surrender to him, to choose to follow him today. C.T. Studd, let me close with this says this, as we think about our options before, remember Jesus is controversial, he's polarized. When you meet Jesus, you got an option, you go one way or the other, there's no in between, it's one way or the other. C.T. Studd, in, in an effort to, to encourage us to come to Jesus, says this, 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon with its fleeting, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before him in his judgment seat. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be, if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We're going to take some time as we finish off this service now, not just to tack communion on the end, but to give you an opportunity now to contemplate the deep truths of what I just shared and to express those believers in here that you know you're believed, to express your love for Jesus and re recommit yourself to being all in for Jesus Christ through communion. Communion, as I said, is for believers. It's a time to really contemplate the deep realities of Jesus, to, to look to him and thank him for the grace that he's given us in the cross. Amazing grace, amazing grace, amen. How sweet the sound. And even to recommit our lives and say, Jesus, because of your love for me, I just want to be all in for you. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you've got it all figured out. It doesn't mean that you're together. It means that I am going to now, through this time, just say, Jesus, I want to be fully in for you again. I want to remember your sacrifice. I want to look to the cross. I want to look to the grace of Jesus. I want to look to heaven. If through this service you realize that you're maybe not on the Jesus side of loving him, you're on the fence side or on the other side of not, not, being, in his, not being with Jesus, let me encourage you with this. As you, as you contemplate deeply, remember there's a choice we make every time we encounter, as you contemplate deeply the realities of Jesus, let me encourage you to do this. As you see the communion service, the communion cups coming by, just think about this. Look at the cup, the, the, the wafer, and think about this. Jesus loved me enough. He loved me enough to allow his body to be broken for me. Why would I, why would I not love him in return and give him everything I have? Look at the cup and, 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 and realize this, that the, the blood that was spilled was on purpose for you. Because your life needed the blood of a Savior to cover over your sin and give you restoration with God. Why would I not love the one who gave his everything for me? If you're not saved today, if you don't know Jesus, you pass the cup by. You know why? Because it says so clearly if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourselves, condemnation on yourselves. We don't, we don't want that in our church. But we'd ask you to contemplate why have I yet to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Come today, see his love. See his love. For the rest of us, let's celebrate the fact that because of Jesus' love, we are forgiven. We are his disciples. We've been called to mission. We've been given an opportunity to see him like, like, like no one else in the universe and be close to God. And let's celebrate the reality of our salvation in Jesus Christ.